Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson. I'm an assistant professor of pastoral ministry at Spurgeon College, author in residence at Midwestern Seminary. And as always, I'm here with my good friend, assistant to the regional traveling secretary of marketing, Ronnie Kurtz. Assistant Director of Marketing. I think I got that right. That's right. Yeah, you you were right the first time. Yep, that's my official title. Yeah. Yeah. How, how I I know PhD students love this question. Yeah. How much longer you got, brother? <laughs> we do love that question. Yeah. It's yeah. it's a good reminder of how terrifying our life currently is. No, uh, things are going well in this in the program. I am well on my way to dissertation writing. So okay. I'm about to conclude uh, chapter one, and so I, I began it. Uh, about a month ago and had a class prep in between there, taught theology too here at Midwestern. So I've done a lot of writing for that, had to take a break, but uh, got to focus on it for a couple of weeks. And I will say, we never want to celebrate this this terrible you know circumstance of the quarantine, but if if the world had to shut down, me writing a dissertation and my wife being pregnant was not a bad time for it to have happened. <laughs> and okay. so... Um, so I got to spend a lot of time at home, a lot of time with her, a lot of time on my books. And so it's it's underway. I'm shooting for a May 2021 graduation. So, oh my word. Okay. So, normally when people say I've started the dissertation, it's like it, it depends on what they're writing about, I suppose. But, yeah, you knock this sucker out, man. Yeah. Well, I, I, I kind of had it in, in sight for a minute. It's a passion, it's a conversation that I'm passionate about. And yeah. so, um, yeah, I've been kind of working towards it for a minute. Well, awesome. God bless you. Yeah. Ronnie's also a pastor at a local church, a Mayus church in North Kansas City, um, right here, pretty close to the seminary, actually. Uh, I'm glad you're here, brother. We've got um, a mailbag episode. We've got some listener-submitted questions. I'm really proud of Twitter folks this time around, because if you remember the last time, all the good questions came from Facebook, I and all, all we had on Twitter was people being idiots, you just snarky, you know, <laughs> the the weirdos of the world. But this there time around— on Twitter? Yeah, oh. can you can you believe that? I can't believe uh, it. <laughs> most of the well, like every question was good. I really had trouble narrowing down, and in fact, I, I we may have too many. I may have to cut it, you know, you know, cut it off if we go too long, and save some for next time. But there's a bunch I'm already having to save for next time. Uh, so if you don't hear your question, uh, please be patient. We got a a number of questions on church planting, which I thought was really interesting. And so instead of you know, kind of putting one or two of those into this uh, episode, I thought we should do a future episode just on church planting itself and just spend about 35, 40 minutes or so um, talking about you know, planting a church. We'll get some of your story um, in, in terms of planting uh, Emmaus. And um, so, it, it, you know, if you're disappointed that your question's not in this list, just be patient and uh, we, we promise that we'll get to it. Um, this could be themed kind of a coronavirus episode and, yeah. and <laughs> because some of the questions, not all of them, but some of the questions are very related to what's going on right now. I, I was surprised by that, if only because my initial instinct was let's not talk about the coronavirus because people may be coronavirus advised out. Yep, absolutely. My hunch, my hunch would be that uh, most pastors um, cannot bring themselves to read one more piece on what you got to do or what you need to do or should do or how to do um, from a bunch of people who've never been through it before either. <laughs> to be honest. The last time I was in a global pandemic, I learned <laughs> That's right. from my first week 
Here's yeah, right. here, let me let me be a consultant at your church yeah. <laughs> uh, on these on these matters. But there's people who who just are looking for some advice and uh, and for our perspective. So hopefully by the time this episode comes out, well. Hopefully, by the time this episode comes out, none of this advice will be relevant because everything will be everything will be healed up, solved out. That's probably not going to happen. Um, but there's some positive signs uh, yeah. out there. As many states begin to open up, and I, I just saw this morning there's some advances on vaccine research, and so um, there's a lot of people spending a lot of time and money trying to fix this problem. And um, we may not be in for a quick fix. We may be in for a long haul here, but um, I'm praying that it's it's over very soon. Amen. And I think, I think most people, most reasonable people are are thinking that as well. All right, let's go ahead and jump on in. Um, here comes the first question, uh, a real softball. <laughs> <laughs> this is from Brad on Twitter, who wants to know our thoughts on virtual communion. Uh, so the phenomenon is, of course, churches aren't able to gather right now, or a lot of churches aren't able to gather right now, I guess I should say. And um, some of them are saying, since we cannot gather, we cannot commemorate the Lord's Supper. Others are saying, um, no, we're, you know, as we're finding substitutes for the gathering, we can find substitute for um, communion. We shouldn't withhold that from our people. And so there's probably a variety of approaches to carrying it out. So I don't want to get into the weeds of how different people are doing it, but just people at home with the elements and it's somehow conducted or officiated online. Uh, thoughts on that, Ronnie Kurtz? Does Emmaus practice virtual communion? We do not. No, okay. We have not been partaking in communion. Um, and and this is a great example of, Jared, where, where you said pastors might be advised out. So before I say anything, let me just say, basically everything I think about the topic has been published somewhere. And so this is not original. And let me point reader or listeners to two different articles. The first is an article on our site, ftc.co, written by uh, Drake Osborne. And uh, he he argued uh, in the negative as well, like like I am. And then the second is just an article on Nine Marks by Bobby Jameson doing the same thing, basically arguing that pastors should not be partaking in communion and should not be administering communion. Church members should not be partaking or administering communion in their homes, those kinds of things. And so, honestly, this is a, not that revolutionary of an argument, but but my whole reasoning for not partaking as a pastor in my church is 1 Corinthians 11. It, I just can't get over how much Paul seems to be emphasizing in that particular chapter that communion is a, a ordinance that we partake in when we gather. And I think it's an ordinance given to the local church. Therefore, it should be celebrated in the local church when that local church is assembled. And since we can't assemble right now, uh, we can't we can't celebrate. And let me just say, this is actually one of the things we've used to teach our church. We, we've been very explicit that what we're doing on Sunday mornings is not a replacement of, of the gathering, right? We're live stream our sermons. I know your church isn't, Jared, um, for a number of reasons, but we, we decided to live stream our sermons. And, but we've been very clear. This is not a Sunday morning replacement. And you can tell, one, because your brothers and sisters aren't next to you, and because, <laughs> two, uh, you're not partaking in communion. And we've, we've been quick to tell them, listen, we should not act like this is okay. We should not act like this is normal and that this isn't a loss or a pain. No, this, this couple-month era now where we have not partaken of the supper is painful. And we, we partake every single week at Emmaus, 
And so any normally when we're together, we partake every week. And so any break like this is substantial. When you're used to taking a weekly supper, um, this is a substantial break. And so uh, we, we've, we've just said this is this is a loss. You know, suffering includes loss. And this is the one of the major losses of this virus. Yeah, I'm I'm along the same lines as you. I, I would want to, especially during this time, I want to caveat what, what I would say by saying none of us have been through this before. It, it's not, un, you know, people keep talking about unprecedented and this is unprecedented. It's not unprecedented in church history, right? You know, we're not the first um, era of the church to go through something like this. But for those of us who are alive, this is um, pretty much unprecedented, right? So, there's a lot of churches just trying to figure it out, trying to do the best to serve their local congregations. And so my opening caveat is to say I give a lot of grace yep, to pastors right. who disagree with our views on this or would differ with us on this. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't condemn them in, in, in any way or say that you're in some kind of gross sin, especially the motivation is that we, um, you know, uh, build our people up spiritually and serve them as good shepherds. And, and so if you come down on the other side of this conversation, please hear that, you know, we're not angry with you. We're not saying, you know, you're a heretic or anything like that. But like you, I, I, I see a distinction in first Corinthians 11, um, between, um, ordinary eating and the meal. Paul is even talking about, you've got food in your homes, you know, you know, all these sorts of things. There's something spiritually significant. And 1 Corinthians 11 isn't the only place we see this, but there's something spiritually significant about the local church gathered where, where Christ's real presence, which isn't absent from an individual Christian out on his own. It's not like Christ leaves you when you're you know, by yourself. But when he says where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And it's in the context of kind of a church discipline situation or, or just the church's, you know, as a political representative of him, he's saying something significant, spiritually significant about when the church gathers. And so for Paul to say in first Corinthians eleven thirty three, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. I, I want to feel that weight. Yeah. Um, the W-E-I-G-H-T weight and the W-A-I-T weight that he's saying, wait for one another. So there's something spiritually significant about the gathering. If there wasn't, he would say, oh, you know, you, you, yeah, you know, you're free to eat of this in your homes. And, but it doesn't seem like we have that freedom. And I would just be cautious. Again, I'm not trying to be dogmatic, but even a time where we're prevented from meeting, I still would just be very cautious about saying, well, Paul didn't anticipate this situation. And in the same chapter, he talks about um, being able to uh, discern the body so that we're not eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. I take that really seriously. Well, gosh, what does that mean? It, so it's possible to disrespect the body of Christ uh, by how we partake of communion. And that can be just in our personal disbelief as we um, you know, partake of the elements, or we're not reconciled to a brother or sister when we partake of the elements, we're in some you know, um, unrepentant sin that's unconfessed or something. But it also could be the manner of, of celebrating the elements themselves. And so I think caution is really the order of the day and it would be one thing if we knew this was a forever, uh, a forever edict. Um, but we don't think that. Um, I mean, perhaps some do, but we don't believe that. And so we just see this as kind of a, a providential hindrance, I think. And so the, yeah, I just think caution is probably the, um, 
the best advice there. So you and I would come down to say no to virtual communion. Um, so yeah, I hope that's helpful, Brad. Hope that's helpful to other listeners as well. Here's a question from Travis, um, also on Twitter. He says, would you counsel having men already prepared to step in as elders before leading a church to embrace that change? I assume he means the change to plurality of eldership or teaching the church well before overtly preparing men for the role. And I'm trying to read between the lines here. I'm deciphering. I think what Travis means is if your church hasn't bought into plurality of eldership yet or elder governance yet, um, not governance, but yeah, elder leadership yet, um, should you be training men or preparing men uh, to be elders before that takes place? So that I'm assuming assuming you get to that stage where a church says, yeah, we want elders, boom, you've got guys who are ready to be voted on and installed. Um, what do you think? What are your thoughts on, on the question? <clears throat> yeah, this might not be super uh, um, convincing to Travis on Twitter. <laughs> um, for that, I'm sorry, Travis on Twitter. But uh, You don't know. Travis is a pretty understanding guy. Oh, good. No, I don't know him, but I'm just assuming. Maybe yeah. he's a part of the get-along gang with me. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I would say that it just depends where the Lord has your church. If the Lord has already given you men, and I think that's the right word, right? I think in uh, our reading of Ephesians 4 should have us say that elders and pastors are gifts to the church, um, along with the other, you know, the string of other little um, positions he lists there. But, but what we see is church officers are given to the church by God. And so I think if the Lord has already given your church elders, you know, men who can be pastors, well, that's amazing. I think you could start working in the background to cultivate that and, you know, make sure that you believe these are going to be faithful elders who can faithfully pastor your people, who faithfully will shepherd, you know, this actual congregation in front of them. Uh, and then, you know, then the church says, yes, we're with you. And boom, you have people right away. That's great. But if the Lord hasn't given you those possible pastor shepherds, overseers, well, then you just don't have that that gift from the Lord, and that's okay. You know, then you can you can still work to faithfully cultivate a right sizing in terms of how your people view the importance and necessity of a plurality of pastors. I think that's still a good endeavor to do, even if you don't have pastors in mind. I think you can pursue that. And so, to ultimately, to answer Travis's question, is I would just say, what what has the Lord given you? Yeah, I think I would say train the men. Um, regardless of if, if, you know, you plan or expect for, you know, eldership to be approved, you lose nothing by training leaders. That's right. Um, you, you may, you know, you may risk their disappointment, you know, so I wouldn't oversell, Hey, you're going to be an elder in the church because you don't know that, right. You don't, you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. You may be optimistic about that and, and optimistic either in your church's openness to making that transition or to your own leadership abilities and, and, and leading the church there. Um, so you don't know for sure that's going to happen, but you lose nothing in training men in, in spiritual godliness and um, ability to teach and, and, you know, all those things. So I think, Leadership development is an aspect of every pastor's role, no matter what kind of church governance structure or, or, or polity you have, I guess I should say. Um, and so, yeah, be training the, the, you know, the men now. Be passing on um, your discipleship and mentorship now. 
And when that day comes, then um, that the church approves that you've got men who are ready to go. Hopefully, the church is also approving of them. I think the concern is just that there's a presumptuousness that may um, irk or irritate people. Like you're assuming this is going to pass, and you don't even know. So why are you acting like that? And so maybe you would just downplay. Hey, these are going to be the future elders. You know, maybe you shouldn't announce that, or, <laughs> or, or, or even make promises to the men about that. Um, but I, you know, it's the role of every Christian man really to aspire to maturity in the Lord. And so, you know, not every man, um, will be qualified to be an elder. Not every man who's qualified to be an elder will be an elder. And yet, um, those are good benchmarks for, um, yeah, for our, you know, spiritual ambition for our ability to grow and mature. So I say just, yeah, train the guys. Don't, don't wait. Um, and then if, if it doesn't go through, you still have these other leaders you know, there's ways to implement them in the church or send them out to, exactly, to plant yeah. other churches or something. Um, uh, so that would be my advice for Travis. Hope that was helpful to you. Here's, um, Aaron also on Twitter, um, back to the kind of COVID-19 discussion here. Um, how do you balance not neglecting to meet together, right? As the Bible instructs, do not forsake the, the gathering together as some are in the habit of doing while loving neighbors who could get sick while, while also submitting to governing authorities. So essentially Aaron is, is saying you've got the government saying, you know, no gatherings over a certain amount, which applies to many churches. Um, I suppose there are some States or jurisdictions where they're flat out saying no church gatherings, period. Um, uh, I'm not familiar with all of the ins and outs of that. Um, but the Bible instructs us not to forsake meeting together. So how long do you give the government? <laughs> is there an expiration date to say, Hey, we want to submit to the governing authorities because the Bible also says to do that. Yep. And, you know, we want to make sure that we're, you know, good citizens, but we also want to make sure that we're faithful citizens of the kingdom yeah. and the kingdom overrides, you know, any earthly government. And so when those, um, you know, governances seem to clash or to compete, how do you decide? Yeah. What do you think, brother? Yeah, this is, I mean, this is the question, at least <laughs> at the time of this recording. Right. This is like the question that. Yeah, right? it's becoming the the angst of this, the tension of this is is reaching a fever pitch about now and, and is not going to get better. No. So yeah. by the time this episode comes out, there may be some solutions already out there. But as we record this, you're right. Like this is the overarching question that's causing not just a lot of angst between people and governments. Um, their mayors and governors and so on, but with businesses and everything else, the economic um, impact, yeah. um, but also between Christians. There's a lot of Christians on social media right now who are really at each other's throats over this issue. So, yeah, good luck. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Ronnie. <laughs> you go first, Jared. <laughs> yeah, let me just start with a couple of caveats. And that, that caveat is something, well, the first one I want to mention is something off of what you just said, which is um, we, we still have to be Christian in how we talk to each other. And what is unique in this season is churches, like, like both of ours, Jared, for example, your church and my church, Liberty Baptist and Emmaus, I think both, both of those local churches have been largely blessed with pretty substantial unity in a lot of ways. You know, overall, there might be some disagreements, but overall, there is pretty substantial unity amongst the church. And there's been pretty substantial unity amongst our elder team. Just in the, in the six years our church has existed, We've not really fought a lot, and this isn't causing fights at all, but there is definitely disagreements that are stronger even amongst our elder team 
than there really have been in so far in the history of our church. And I think that's true also of our members. Our members who have largely enjoyed a substantial unity are now finding themselves on you know, one side of the conversation or another. And we've, we have been very vocal as a pastor team basically to say, look, you might disagree with each other and that's okay. Like this, we just need to all take a moment, breathe, realize we're going to be okay and go forward with Christian charity and Christian wisdom. And so I, would, I, I think I would want to blanket everything I say with that reality. I think everyone needs to breathe no, we'll be okay, and move <laughs> yeah. forward Christian charity and Christian wisdom. Um, with that being said, I think uh, there is a tension that, that we're trying to listen to, right? I think first, to answer their question, I do not think, and I have been teaching my people, that we, I do not believe we are neglecting Hebrews 10.35. I, I do not think we are, in this moment, forsaking the gathering of the saints. I, I do not think that's what's happening. I think what that is calling on is a willful... Uh, I, I am purposely leaving the saints and not being with them, even though they're working hard to gather together. I am not going to do it because I don't want to be amongst their numbers. Uh, I think that's that, or even like an yeah. idleness. They're they're meeting, they're being faithful, but I'm idle and neglecting that that meeting, and I'm willfully forsaking, whether because of hatred or arrogance or idleness or what anything you you pick your vice. Um, but I'm going to forsake them for these reasons. That is not what's happening right now. Uh, what's happening right now is a unique global medical crisis that is causing us to temporarily abstain from an assembly. And that is different than neglecting the gathering of the saints. And so let me just hopefully ease some consciences amongst our listeners that I do not think we are neglecting the saints and therefore not in sin in any way. However, I don't want this to last forever. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. I want this thing to be over soon. And so we are, you know, I, I want to recognize a few things. I want to recognize that I am not a medical expert. I'm not a scientific expert. Right. I, so I want to listen to those people. I also want to listen to the fact that my people need an assembly. Right. We, we do not need for our spiritual health to be taken apart like this. We need the assembly. Uh, my people need uh, a regular intake of the word, a regular uh, practicing of the ordinances, regular communion with one another. And so I, I recognize those things. And so I am eagerly, you know, I'm chomping at the bit to get back together. And at the same time, I'm trying to counterbalance that with wisdom from what I'm being instructed. So uh, we are still, we are not meeting at, as of the time of this question, or at the time of this podcast, we are not meeting yet at Emmaus in any, in any way, um, but we're eager to. And so we're listening, trying to have wisdom, and then also trying to love our neighbor, uh, as, as he mentioned here, by, by not being spreaders of the virus, you know, uh, and submit to the governing authority. So basically what we're trying to do is, in Christian wisdom and with Christian grace, we're trying to take all of the commands given to us in the New Testament that apply to this unique scenario and be obedient to them all, um, which might look unsatisfying to some people the way that some churches choose to do it, and that is okay. Yeah, uh, along with the virtual communion question, I'm in a position of saying I, I want to afford a lot of grace to pastors who are coming down on different sides of of this question. Um, certainly, there are there are foolhardy people out there, but because my you know too long didn't read answer is I don't know I don't know 
<laughs> how long is going to go on? I don't really know what the um, what the profound dangers are. I mean, you can read all the all the stats, and 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 we're seeing some pretty dire numbers and things. Um, and yet, you know, there are pastors who make the decision, um, you know, to resume gatherings in limited ways, curtailed ways, augmented ways, and. You know, I I don't have the the moral authority to to condemn them. Um, you know, are they endangering lives by doing that? I I don't know. I honestly don't know. Um, some of the you know the news stuff I see would would imply it's not completely safe. But the other part of me is saying is is that the new standard for all of life now that we can only do things that are completely safe? I I don't know. I mean. We've been in 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 danger of of you know contracting things, and so I just want to say it, it's hard for me to kind of nail down and say what you should and shouldn't do. Um, to me, the questions that I come up with in terms of you know how long do you give the government in relation to this is um, I want you know I want to know things like is the government also forbidding other kinds of gatherings or are they singling out the church? Um, because in some places it seemed like that really was the case. For instance, in, in one state where, where drive-in services were being targeted, that seemed to me like, um, and I could be wrong, but that seemed to me like an unfair, prejudicial targeting of religious assembly um, you know, by that jurisdiction. Um, but in other places where it's, hey, it's, it's any gathering over, you know, 50 people or, or something like that, that's not a, a tar- that's not persecution. That's not a targeted thing. Um, on churches, but I feel along with a lot of pastors, I'm not pastoring now, but I feel with a lot of pastors and, you know, people who own small businesses and and other places to say, um, that the answer can't be, uh, this is just how it's going to be now. There, ha- you know, there needs to be some plan. What's the next benchmark? And maybe we don't know a time frame for that, but originally it was, we want to flatten the curve and we're, so we're going to give it two weeks and, and that just seems to get further and further extended which is fine. I think a lot of people would be fine with that if they knew, like, what is it we're waiting for? And those answers seem to be slow in coming. So like you, I don't think this is a forsaking of the assembly. Um, the, the, you know, the context of that passage really seems to be more about, as you said, uh, an intentional neglect of um, individual believer, you know, from participating. Um, this is more like a providential hindrance. We've all been by God's providence, uh, forced into the position of being shut-ins. <laughs> and just like you wouldn't wield out that verse on shut-ins, you shouldn't wield it out on on pastors and Christians who are, are, are just trying to keep people safe, if that's what they deem is, is necessary. In a related question, then, um, Chris on Facebook is asking about our thoughts on churches that insist on meeting when the government is, re- is requiring them not to meet so kind of the civil disobedience issue, um, I think both of us will probably tread lightly <laughs> here. Um, and, and, and I'll go first. I keep putting it in your court to go first or not. And <laughs> yeah, so you can correct me. Go first, yeah, yeah. So so I'll just say, just as I said you know, previously, I have a lot of sympathy, um, not with the foolhardy pastors that are just like, you know, we're, you know, butting our heads against every wall that comes up because every, you know, I'm carrying a hammer and everything looks like a nail. Um, you know, those are, you know, there are argumentative, angry leaders out there. I'm not talking about them, but those who have a genuine angst about 
the you know caring for their people um seeing i think harsh restrictions so for instance if i'm that you know church um that is singled out as opposed to so other gatherings you know can can assemble but the church cannot um i'm not saying i'm going to meet next week but i would be sympathetic to the pastors who say you know what that's an unfair you know prejudicial targeting of religious assembly and as an act of civil disobedience as an act of protest we're going to meet at the same time I think every pastor has a responsibility right now to say to their people, if you do not feel safe, you know, we're not shaming you. We're not condemning you. Um, So just as an example, our church um, is is beginning to meet tentatively, uh, I think this Sunday or the next, they're opening up in a very augmented way. So it's a very kind of structured, there's a limit to who can be in the building. We're moving to to two services, one in the morning, one in the evening, so everything can be disinfected and wiped down in the in-between time. Um, you have to sign up to be able, uh, um, and then because so many people signed up <laughs> to want to return um, that exceeds the limits, now it, it looks like most of us will be every other Sunday. We can't go every Sunday to allow people to uh, to be able to gather. And yet our pastors in their kind of official kind of rollout of this announcement also said, um, if you do not feel comfortable gathering, um, whether for safety reasons or other, um, whether you're, you know, if you have a, you know, um, you know, if you're in an at-risk, you know, demographic, you're an older, you know, member, you're immunocompromised, do not feel pressure to, you know, rejoin at this time. You know, no one's going to be angry with you or discipline you for not meeting or anything like that. It's it's purely to your kind of discretion. I thought that was really appropriate in order to say. For those who are ready to rejoin, we're going to do it in this way to maintain safety. Um, and this is still under the governing authority's allowance. But if you don't, then don't. And I think that's a good pastoral way to kind of approach the idea of reopening. But this whole thing of like, we're going to thumb our nose at every authority so everybody show up and, oh, you you think we should keep six feet away? Man, we're going to be licking each other's faces. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> That kind of rebellion, that kind of rebelliousness. I mean, you know, no one has said that, but I've yeah, seen people like yelling people's faces on, on, you know, on picket lines and everything to personally violate the recipient's desire of of, of a safety zone. You know, oh, you want to be safe? Forget you. Yeah, I, I think any pastor who's doing that um, probably is is on the verge of disqualification. So that's not what I'm addressing. But you know, there are times where civil disobedience, I think, is required. I, is that required in every instance right now? No. Is it required in some instances right now? Um, I don't know if it's required, but I do think we should grant a little bit of liberty for different contexts and situations. That's my really kind of jellyfish way of addressing the question. Probably Chris wanted some definitive like, man, thumb your nose at those tyrannical, you know, (laughs) but I'm just not there yet. Yeah. I I think there's a time to do that. Um, I think there's a, you know, there's a time for justice. There's a time to protest unfair, um, you know, unjust um, strictures. Uh, I'm just not prepared to say that's time now in every situation, but maybe it is. So I don't know. I I, I agree with basically everything you said there, Jared. Um, (laughs) All right. Enough said. Let's move on. No, go ahead. No, I'm glad you went first. I, I think again, grace and wisdom is kind of the name of, of the day right now. And we, we all need to realize that there are, there are three passages that we're all trying to make sense of. Don't forsake the gathering of the saints. Uh, submit to the, the ruling authorities and love your neighbors. And we're trying to do our best, each pastor in his own way, 
to make sure that our churches are faithful to those three passages. And being obedient to those three passages right now might look a little bit different in your context, and it's going to look in my context, and then it's going to look in some other brother's context. And again, that is okay. And so I think I think those guidelines that you've outlined there are really helpful in terms of we're not disobedient for disobedience sake. Uh, we're not rebellious for rebellious sake, but it is a category we have working in our minds if we need to, if the Lord would have it that way. Uh, we're all just trying to be wise and, and gracious here. Yeah, um, I, I think in general, um, cutting people some slack to make the right decisions for their churches is is really helpful. Just recently, um, I saw a statement from John MacArthur, actually, in response to this question, and I thought it was really good. Um, and, and he basically came down on to say is we're not in a period of, of persecution um, because the, the strictures are not targeting churches. They're, they're targeting gatherings over a certain amount for the public good, for the health and safety of others. Now, you may disagree, right? You may say, um, no, there's really no you know, danger out there. And, and there's a lot of people saying that, right? It's a, the whole thing's a hoax or it's overblown or whatever it is. And you may be right about that. And yet submission to the governing authorities often implies a disagreement with them. And so unless, um, you know, real prejudicial liberty, uh, uh, uh restriction of liberty is being exercised. Um, I don't think we have the grounds to, um, set aside our, our command um, to be in submission there. So it's probably a, a contextual thing. I think I would say I may have a different answer in two months, That's three right. months, yeah. you know, something like that. Um, certainly I, again, I sympathize with the pastor who is saying, Hey, this indefinite, we don't know, um, kind of thing. It isn't good. It, it's fine. If you want to say there's no date, but tell us what the benchmark is. W- what is it we're working towards? So at least we know, um, that that's kind of the goal line for us. All right, let's move on. This is kind of a different category. Uh, Jonathan on Twitter is asking, what is the gospel? <laughs> <laughs> and I think Jonathan has an answer to it. I'm pretty sure Jonathan has an answer to it, but I'm, I, you know, he didn't give any context. I think the background is a recent kind of debate, which I didn't read every back and forth, but I read a few of them uh, between kind of Greg Gilbert and the Nine Marks folks and Scott McKnight and another fellow whose name Matthew uh, Bates. Matthew Bates, in relation to kind of the the King Jesus gospel versus what McKnight and Bates would call the Soterian gospel. I think McKnight invented that phrase, um, applying to those who um, would say it's not a gospel unless you're speaking about personal sin and atonement in some way, justification in some way. Um, but emphasizing the kingship of uh, of Christ, the good news of the kingdom, and maybe that's the the background to the question: What is the gospel? So, Ronnie, if somebody were just to say to you, some it's, you know, come up to you on the street, what's the good news? What what would you say? Yeah, and I think that's a good way to ask the question because it it shows the contextual realities of how we should answer. Because in that in that instance, there's no chance I don't turn to some kind of first Corinthians 15. Yes. That's, know, that's where, exactly what I have pulled up. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that that's, that's what I'm doing. That's what, that's, that's what Paul did. That's what I'm going to do. Life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. And by that reality, we can be saved. That's what I'm going to turn to. Now, a little more full-fledged context, I do get, and I can sympathize with what Matthew Bates and Scott McKnight are saying. And I honestly think this is 
a, a ongoing issue that kind of resurfaces in the theological landscape, you know, over and over. And it it's just different aspects of the conversation, right? Because this is the, we've heard it as the gospel in the air versus the gospel on the ground. We've heard it as a wide lens gospel versus a zoom lens gospel. Now we're yeah. hearing it as the King Jesus gospel versus the Soterion gospel. And really, this is the same this is the same conversation. It's just kind of resurfaced in a, in a new way. And and the reality is, I think we can hold these things together because I think that Christian theology holds them together. And to use a couple of theological words and then to, to back away from theology, this is the difference between what we call the ordu salutis and the historia salutis, the order of salvation and the history of salvation. Uh, and I think we should work hard to keep both of those together. For instance, I actually think a really good answer to the question given the contextual, I'm assuming what you're assuming that Jonathan is asking in the context of this particular conversation. Uh, I actually think in Greg Gilbert and Kevin DeYoung's book, What is the Mission of the Church? They actually give a really good answer to this question. And I've been waiting for, I know Greg references, I, I did read the back and forths between between the parties because I'm just interested in this conversation. And um, Greg did reference the book, which I think is an amazing book in a lot of ways. But in that book, they actually say the gospel is the proclamation that the king has come with his kingdom and the means by which you enter that kingdom. Right. And I think that's a great word. I think that the, there is good news that the king is here, right? There is very good news in that. And then there is very good news in the fact that, that king is not a stranger to you, but by the blood of the second person of the Trinity and in union with him, we can actually enter that kingdom. And so I think you actually do need both the historical and the soteric elements uh, for it to be a complete package. But again, that's contextual. If, if an old lady asks me, what must I do to be saved? I'm not doing that. I'm doing 1 Corinthians 15 work. Uh, right. Believe unto Jesus and repent of your sin. Yeah, I just find it notable um, that that's how Paul sums it up, right? So there's a lot you could say, and I've always said, well, I haven't always said, but I've long said the, <laughs> the gospel is one song, but there are many notes, right? And and, yeah. and I wrote a whole book called Gospel Deeps uh, about this, how the gospel is is one thing, and yet there's many different facets to it. Um, but I have the same concern in you know in response to the McKnight Bates camp as the Nine Marks guys would, which is to say, when you say Jesus is King. And you say that's good news. I, I agree, that's good news. But it's because I understand what's entailed. That's right. Yep. In his kingship. So, in order for someone to understand Jesus as King as good news, you you have to have a okay. What does that mean? Kind of yep. imply, you know, uh, drawn out from it. So, as a statement, I, I affirm the kingdom is at hand. That's good news. But it's only good news because I know what it means for a sinner like me. <laughs> yeah, otherwise, right? it's exactly the opposite. It's bad news. That's right. If, if if I'm unrepentant or if I'm opposed to the kingdom, man, this is real bad news that's coming <laughs> yeah. my way. Um, and, and it's right. So it just involves, I think you almost have to say, rightly understood, Jesus is king is good news or is, is the gospel. But when Paul says... This is what I've resolved to know among you, 1 Corinthians 2 2. He says, Christ and him crucified. In 1 Corinthians 15, he begins to say, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you believe, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you. And then he says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He goes on to you know, talk about the resurrection. It's 
sometimes the conversations feel like pitting the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 15 against the rest of the chapter, because he goes on to talk about just the wonder of the resurrection and the eschatological ramifications of it, so on and so forth, all of which is, yes, good news. That's right. But it's good news when we understand it through the, applica- the personal application. So sometimes I think, I go back and forth between these guys are talking past each other to... Um, I think um, on one part, kind of a willful, I think sometimes there's an anti-reformed kind of uh, tribalism that's that's directing part of the conversation. It's it's somewhat uh, tangential to the the pushback against penal substitution. And I know the you know McKnight and and Bates do not deny you know penal substitution and that sort of thing. But it's a it's a somewhat tangential um, you know, conversation where it's really this, Hey, well, whatever those reformed guys, (laughs) whatever they're kind of focusing on, we got to make sure that we're against that or, or something. And, and that, that seems somewhat telling to me. Yeah. And as, as, you know, go ahead, Jared. No, I was just going to say, I I, I just think, um, the, the Bible speaks about the gospel in multifaceted ways. And yet when it comes to the proclamation, somebody walks up to you on, on the street and says, what is the gospel? If you say Jesus is king, you better explain further what that means for that person so that it actually sounds like it's good news. That's right. Otherwise, you say Christ died for your sin. You're a sinner, but Jesus died for you. If you repent and believe, all of his righteousness gets credited to you. You are forgiven. You are united to him. There's so much you could say, but it has to begin with, why is the news good? Yeah, that's right. right. It's that's not right. just news, it's good news. That's right, yeah. I, I totally agree with that. And that's kind of a, a, my last word on that particular question. This is really an aspect of my dissertation in a way, because in my dissertation, I'm basically arguing that it's very important to keep the person of the Trinity together with the work of the Trinity, or the person of Christ with the work of Christ. And and I'm arguing that we should never divorce them and focus just on the person or just on the work. Um, but the, the, the work is always informed by the person. We, we, I say function is always informed by ontology. And that actually, not only is it true, I believe, but I think it's beautiful. And I think there's a, a aspect of aesthetics we leave on the field uh, if, we, if we focus on one over the other. And I think this conversation helps us see that what's amazing is that the king really is coming. And we can learn about the ontology of that king. We can learn his kingdom is forever because he is forever. We can learn about his the, the justness of his kingdom because he is just. He doesn't just have justice. He is justice because of simplicity. You know, we can learn a lot about the person of that king. And actually, learning about the ontology or the person of that king is what makes the fact that a scum like me gets to come into it beautiful. Mm. You know, because I, I, I have no right to sit at the banquet feast of that particular king. But because of the work he has done for me, a, a worm like me gets a seat at the table. And so I think actually keeping the person and the work together highlights a lot of beauty in the Christian gospel. That's a good word. All right, last question. And I'm, I'm throwing you a curveball because this isn't one that I, <laughs> that I sent you. <laughs> Bring it on. Uh, yeah, so Taylor on Facebook is asking about how quickly or patiently Christians should speak to current issues ethical issues, social justice issues, things like that. Basically, how do you know the right time? And, and I don't, I, I'm going to guess here, I don't want to put words in Taylor's mouth, but, uh, you know, recently um, we have seen in the news certain um, incidents like um, the killing of Ahmad um, Arbery and 
there are people who very quickly, um, you know, were commenting on that. And as things develop, there's others who say, ah, you shouldn't have made conclusions so quickly. I'm assuming um, Taylor is speaking to that. I want to hold off on that question because I think it needs a little bit more nuance than we have time for. And so, um, but it's somewhat related (laughs) to the question I do want to ask you. Um, So Taylor, if you're listening, we're going to come back to your question, I promise. Um, but it's related to right now, the hot potato. And it seems, it just seems like, I think people are bored, man. We need just, we need to get outside. <laughs> so every day people are talking about stuff that I just thinking, Oh, this is what it is today. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it's conspiracy theories. Oh man. Yeah. So I, I don't want to get into the weeds on, of course. Cons- on, on specific theories or anything like that, but you know, there's there was a, a an article in the Atlantic that recently came out, and we don't do hot takes. So by the time this comes out, the people there'll be four other things that Christian <laughs> social media have ripped each other's you know gullets yeah, out about. Yeah. Um, so this is good that that we'll be late to this party. Um, but there was a piece in the Atlantic that came out talking about the new religion of QAnon and how you know there's overlap with with evangelical Christians and. You know, I've witnessed that personally. There are some who's saying, you know, in pushback, that doesn't exist. They've made it up and blah, 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 blah. Almost like a conspiracy theory to counter the conspiracy theory. I don't know. Um, but, you know, if you've been around a while, like you've seen this thing, it's it's been cropping up. So I don't want to talk about QAnon, but just the, the, the phenomena itself, because pastors are are wondering about this. And actually I got a, I got an email f- through Facebook from another questioner basically saying, how do you pastor people who believe in conspiracy theories. So I want to smuggle that question in. Wow. Not necessarily pastoring people, but just let's just talk about for the last you know, several <laughs> minutes we got here, conspiracy theories in okay. general. Well, why why do they pl- you know proliferate? Plur- why are they <laughs> common? Why are they popular? Any, yeah. any thoughts on that? Yeah, this is a good this is a good curve. Right off the top of your head. I, you had no <laughs> prep for this. It's a conspiracy. Yeah, so let me just uh caveat <laughs> this is the very first time I'm hearing this question or seeing okay. this question. So give me grace. I would say, yeah. So I, um, one, thanks to Samuel James. I, I used to say that Matt Smethers was my favorite voice on Twitter. Yeah. But man, I'll tell you, Samuel is giving him a run for his money. Okay. And LeBron comes up on MJ. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Samuel was the one who pointed me to that Atlantic article, uh, the prophecy of Q from the Atlantic. I did read it last night. Um, didn't know you were going to ask me this question, but I did read okay. it. Okay. Found- so you prepped. I found it fascinating. Of course, I found it fascinating. And not only did I find it fascinating, I found it um, explanatory of experiences that I have in terms of what I've been asked about so far in this coronavirus. I mean, yeah. I have been asked as a pastor some crazy things. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. and uh, what I, how I would answer this question, Jared, how do I pastor in the midst of conspiracy theories is I would do a couple of things. One, I think, Kevin Van Hooser can be very helpful here because Kevin Van Hooser has that long, long held belief that I absolutely adore that pastors can be administers of reality and that theologians can be administers of reality. And I think one of the things we can do in pastoring through a pandemic is help people remove the falsehood from their eyes and administer in its place what is real which we know that the scriptures to be real, doctrine to be real, theology to be real, that the drama of what God is doing with the world uh, in and through himself and to himself, those are all what is real. So we can remove the falsity of, of um, conspiracy theories and apply or administer reality. 
I also believe not only do we need to minister reality because you can you can hear that and basically think I just gave you a license to be a jerk. <laughs> you know, administer reality at all costs is different than administering reality as a Christian pastor. And so not only do I believe we should administer reality in terms of intellectual truth, what is real, what is false, I also think we need to pastor emotional beings because our people are emotional beings. Yeah. And so while we also need to administer, while we need to minister reality, we also need to administer emotion and help our people feel the right way. Because here's the reality, Pastor, even if some of your people believe conspiracy theories and you know they're true, they don't feel like they're untrue. And I think it's actually doing them a disservice to only minister to their head and not take in their perception. Because while their perception may be wrong, their perception is real. And, and we need to pastor them out of a wrong emotive state and an intellectual state. And so I think that that's going to look a lot of different ways for a lot of different people. And so I, I do think one of the things we can say univocally, though, across the board, is one of the ways in which we can love our neighbors is, not the, is to stop the continual spread of conspiracy theories. That is a way <laughs> we can love our neighbor. It's yeah. not spreading conspiracy theories. But um, they're but- so interesting, man. Uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll be honest. So i got a few things to say. The first is, I like conspiracy theories. Oh, Jared, this is the first time you and I are strongly disagreeing. I know. Well, I, I'm not saying they're they're all right or they're all true. Um, but I, have, I, un- I understand on an imaginative, emotional level the fascination with them. <laughs> It's similar, I think, to my interest in true crime type I, I stuff. I was about to say that, Jared. I think so. Think and cryptozoology, um, <laughs> you know, because I want to believe that there's Bigfoot and I want to, you know, I'm interested in UFO stuff. I don't know what I think about UFOs, but I'm I, I'm I'm fascinated by the concept and all that sort of thing. Um, some conspiracy theories have come true, or we've are, we've seen have tr- you know have been true. Um, things like government programs and things like that that were at one point would be considered, you know, conspiracy theory, and then we find out later are true. Um, there are some that that I that I think are true that have not, you know, been proven true. Like things like um, I don't think Leo Harvey Oswald acted alone. I think that there was a, at least a second shooter. That there was a conspiracy, and. Jared, I'm starting to believe that you threw this curveball in because you actually needed personal pastoral advice. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. Well, I'm going to take a turn. Be yeah. Don't 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 worry too much. So I just want to say on the front level, to say all conspiracies are wrong or all conspiracies are bad. That's a blanket statement when we're talking about a particular phenomenon that's happening right now. That is uh, a level of obsession and vitriol for some people. That's different, I think. Right. So facts are facts. Evidence is evidence. Um, on a pastoral level, I want to say, why do people, why are people fascinated with this stuff? And I'm old enough to, you know, I'm not old, but I'm old enough to remember these things are very cyclical. So when people start talking about some of these things going on right now, um, you know, putting the mark of the beast in the virus or in the vaccine or whatever it is, my brain goes back to Sunday school when I was in the you know fifth grade and our Sunday school teacher saying they're developing a computer in Switzerland called the beast. 
and it is already prepared to put the you know the mark as as a UPC symbol or a you know barcode on everybody's wrist. Um, I'm I'm remembering the satanic panic of the 1980s and 90s and and things like the McMartin preschool trial and 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 other things where there was the these vast conspiracies alleged in, including personal testimonies that were given on the stand all of which or most of which later was was found to be untrue people vindicated after having their lives ruined from these things i'm remembering those things and um you know writers like tex mars and 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 jim mars and different people like that who were feeding into the christian community all kinds of new world order type conspiracies and all those sorts of things. But then they went away. And I'm thinking the, the, the fascinating, the popularity now of this stuff, which is basically a rehash of all of that old stuff is on the part of people who either never stopped believing the old stuff, or they long for those glory days of the kind of weird fascination or people too young, not to know that there's nothing new under the sun. This stuff just gets recycled. So I want to ask, what's the fascination with these things? And I think of a few things. Number one, we, we're a very polarized people right now. And I think you should be on guard if, if all your conspiracy theories only indict the people that you already don't like. <laughs> you know, your people are never in, involved in the conspiracies ever. It's always those people that you disagree with or don't like. Um, your people are always the good guys. That, that kind of black and whiteism. Um, is is uh, w- w- would be suspect, I think. Secondly, conspiracy theories kind of work like a, a um, the worst kind work like Rorschach tests, right? So, barring any evidence, you just see patterns and things that don't necessarily, you know, it's it's all about speculation, and so you see what you want to see in in certain things, and you don't see things that are very clear. Um, it just becomes a reflection of what you already think your your preconceived biases, right? I also think we just have a hard – we're hardwired by nature for making sense of things, for order, for design. That's part of being made in the image of God. And so in things that seem chaotic, that make us anxious or make us fearful, our bent is to try to make sense of them. This piece has got to fit into this, and this has to go here. And that it's, it's just kind of how we're wired to kind of do that. But my overarching concern is not – which conspiracy theories are true or not? I mean, I, I obviously have opinions on that. Um, the phenomenon among Christians to me is that becomes the, their narrative and not the gospel of Jesus. So if, if, if you ever wade into any kind of the social media waters of, of some of the folks that are r- really fascinated with these things or, or believe these things, you see that their daily narrative is not the grace of God come through the person and and work of Jesus Christ, their daily narrative is you got to watch out for the enemy. And I'm going to tell you who the enemy is. And can you see what the enemy did today? And it it becomes this kind of pit of, of anger and derision, all driven by the narrative that gets them up in the morning, which is the conspiracy theory, whether it's big Eva or QAnon or, Pizza Gate or what? I mean, there's a million different things out there. But when you know, you can say I'm doing this to defend the gospel. But if your narrative is the conspiracy theory, that's going to show you, your narrative is kind of this oppositional, and and that's my pastoral concern. Regardless of if the theory is true or not, if the main story you're telling through your life and your actions and your words is not the compelling beauty of Jesus Christ, you've lost the plot. Mm-hmm. 
That's you, right. you know, so, so that would be, I guess, my final word um, on that. Anything else you want to add on these questions? No, or, no? That, that is the longest I've talked about conspiracy theories in, in a minute. So, man, well, I got some books on the JFK thing <laughs> that I can share with you. Be glad to do that. Um, I have heard a number of times about your love of, of murder mysteries and unsolved crimes. And, yeah, yeah. No, this is not a surprise, Jared. Okay. <laughs> well, good deal. Hey, man, thanks for sitting down with me. I really appreciate it. Of course. Hey, dear listener, thank you for listening to this latest audio excursion. We hope that this has been helpful to you, not just to your mind, but to your soul as well. Uh, if you've enjoyed what you hear, please give us a good review on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to this podcast on. Um, and as always, we pray for you. Our hope for you is that Jesus would be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.